I do. I do. I um, I met Watt years ago when I was working at Columbia Records. Yeah. Um, and we put out uh, the first record I worked. I worked with him on a couple of records, but the first one was um, Ball Hog or Tugboat. Okay. Um, which you may remember solo was air, was, yeah. a, was a solo record that had like a ton of guest stars. Yeah, um, I can't even remember all the stars, but it was like Eddie Vedder when Pearl Jam yeah, was I huge. Yeah, I feel like there would have been like a flea. Like there a, might have been a flea exactly. on there, and yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I was a Sony college rep at the time. Okay. This was when I was in school, and I grew up with hardcore. Like that's that's the, that's yeah, the music yeah, yeah. that that really uh, spoke to me when I was. In high school, where are you from? Um, I grew up here in New York. Okay, okay, so that's yeah. a, a different scene, but yeah, it was kind of like I grew up with New York hardcore mm-hmm. and and uh, and DC as well. I guess sure. you know I was yeah, a huge yeah. Bad Brains fan, yeah. and I listened to Minor Threats and, sure. and and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I I grew I later when I got more. Um, more into mainstream music, mm-hmm. I started to like some of the West Coast bands because I was. I think they are a lot popular. The West West Coast hardcore bands, but well, but my, I, I, I turned weird. to them a little later. Minor, are, are, uh, Minutemen are a weird thing. <laughs> Minutemen are a weird thing. I mean, popular, you know, they're part but, of the scene, but to yeah. me, that music isn't really hardcore music. Yeah, I mean, it's like almost just very fast. It's almost more experimental jazz Super than it is. Super intricate. Almost, you know? I don't want to call it math rocky, but some it really is. weird guitar to, things happening. Totally. To me, the Minutemen are way yeah. more math rock than they are yeah, yeah, hardcore. Yeah. But it, the way I think of the music. Yeah. But I feel like they're very hardcore in terms of their ethic. Sure. And their, their sort of ethos, the do-it-yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. ethos. Yeah. And, and the like, you know, to, Watt once told me that he thought everything uh, in music, in the, in the business of music, the way he described it was it's, you're either a, a gig or a flyer, which basically meant a, a, everything in your career is a, is a flyer, meaning like something to get you to the show. I so wish that we had, the shows, I, I, I wish, I wish that we had had this conversation before I talked to him just because um, you said that you guys actually had to create a, a dictionary. Yes, a we Pedro, did. Oh, like a Pedro speak dictionary. Oh, yeah, where I was going with all this was that, um, was that I was one of the few college reps. Yeah. That had a background in really okay. knowing who Watt okay. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for most most of the people uh, on the team, they were really excited about all the guest stars. Mm-hmm. You know, all sure. the, the Eddie Vedders of the world. Yeah. And I was freaking excited about Mike Watt. I was like, Oh my god, it's Mike sure, Watt. No disrespect to Eddie Vedder, but no, totally, totally, no <laughs> yeah, disrespect yeah, yeah. to any of those guys. But I was just, I was beyond myself with excitement mm-hmm. to like spend time with Watt. And I think that. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think like the fact that I kind of knew that legacy made him a little bit immediately more comfortable with me. Yeah. So we became friends. Yeah. And um, and when I launched my first company, Star Polish, um, which still ex- exists uh, on the Tuariant website, but basically it's a company that was dedicated to um, to educating uh, developing artists. Mm-hmm. Um, our mission was uh, our tagline was helping artists help help themselves. We provided a lot of free advice for developing musicians, and Watt was on my advisory board, you know, because he was a guy that kind of really yeah. lives and breathes that that kind of um, sure. ethic. He's, he's so I've in known it. Watt in a lot of capacities yeah. over the years, starting off as I was a marketing rep for yeah. his records, but then we became friends, and then he became like an advisor for my company. Um, he literally crashed in this building at my in my apartment upstairs on a tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget which tour that was, uh, but yeah, I've spent time in the boat. Yeah, I'm, yep, uh, I'm yep. a huge fan. But uh, but when we were at Sony, uh, some of the some of the people who were not huge fans yeah. didn't totally understand Watt speak. So we did actually put a little glossary together to. To explain that the boat is his van, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know things like that. Econo, you know? and yeah, yeah, what it means to jam Econo, yeah. and you know that was a weird. I mean, that was that was an in, in, interesting time, I guess. Guess for for him specifically, because that was yeah. I mean, that that was them trying to make this guy from 
from the Minutemen, this guy from the this, this yeah. you know Southern California hardcore scene, into a star by way of the eight million cameos on this record. It was yeah by way of association because yeah. because you know um, yeah I mean. Watt has that respect among yeah. people who know him, but he never broke through in the way that, like, you know, Mother Love Bone turned into Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Firehose never turned into, yeah. you know, some huge yeah. band that everybody's heard of. Um, and I, I think he, that suits him just fine, and as a fan, it suits me just fine. But I could understand for the record labels, they yeah. might want a little bit more, you know, or they wanted a little bit. I shouldn't say the record labels. He was on Columbia yeah. Records at the time, big, big record label, and they, you know, they wanted more. And I, I get that. But it was an odd record. It was a bit of an odd record. Yeah, and I went, you know, actually, actually, after we had a very brief exchange online, I went, I went back uh, and, and looked at some of the videos from the time, and you know, these are like him. Being, you know, this is like him on Letterman. Like this is really, it, it's just, it's such a strange juxtaposition. Yeah, that guy in that scene, like these, yeah. these like big budget MTV videos. But it seemed like the '90s, um, specifically, especially after that first big. Uh, Nirvana push like it seemed like there was a chance for just about anybody to to get in there totally totally and a lot of people forget that like the Nirvana thing basically happened because you know on on in a mainstream way yeah. you know the the whole um, the Geffen records you know getting behind it in that mm-hmm. you know the MTV mm-hmm. you know I mean it was Geffen that yeah. that, that took that band yeah. and um, you know got them the music video and the radio play and the you know all that stuff and that really came out of Sonic Youth yeah you know Sonic Youth yeah. signed to Geffen yeah. and actually like part of the business behind Geffen signing Sonic Youth you know they they did a uh, uh, unprecedented thing which is that they told Sonic you they could have total creative control over their records mm-hmm. which no major record label was giving artists you yeah. know like do whatever you want you know that was very unusual and still would be unusual but they believed in Sonic Youth and I think it was the only way they could have signed a band like Sonic Youth and and I was told that um, part of internally they were thinking like this will you know having Sonic Youth on our roster will have incredible spillover effects sure. in that like not only are they a great band yeah. but other great bands are going to want to be on this label because yeah. because it's Thurston Moore approved you know and and I, I, if I understand my history correctly, the fact that Sonic Youth was on Geffen was a huge reason why Kurt felt comfortable mm. putting Nirvana on Geffen. So the, the the gamble paid off, I guess. But you know, it goes back to like you know, it wasn't just Nirvana; it was Sonic Youth before that, who were even way more out there. You know? Yeah. Who? Who? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that that, that was kind of the right move to, or maybe the only way to keep them on board, because you know, the, the downside of that is you never really get a big hit out of that. I mean, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't have that crossover. Success. And God bless Geffen, because they yeah. seem they seem totally okay with that mm-hmm. i mean like they put out a few sonic youth records mm-hmm. that that great didn't, sonic didn't youth have records. any yeah. quote-unquote hits yeah. i mean i guess sugar well, sugar cane might have been Heather the closest might have been yeah, i guess yeah, yeah. R- roughly what year did you actually uh, start in the uh, in, in i guess in the record business yeah so i started working in the music industry when i was in college um my sophomore year so that would have been uh 92 Two, okay, nineteen ninety-two, yeah, so something you, like that. So yeah, you were right. That, that, that's, that's early, prime, it, er, definitely early nineties. Let's, let's just say early nineties. Right totally. Yeah, oh yeah, you're, totally. You're I mean, I um, you know, I uh, I worked. You know, we were talking a lot about Pearl Jam. Yeah. I was I was working at Sony Music, and I literally um, you know, worked on ten, mm-hmm. and I threw. I was at UPenn. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, favorite store. Favorite one of the coolest things I think I've done was I um. I'm not a big basketball fan. I just I'm not a sports guy sure. in general. But I was led to believe that the Palestra at the University of Pennsylvania was a very famous 
college uh, uh, basketball court, yeah. and I guess it is. Okay, and uh, I'll and take uh, for it. and Pearl Jam are huge basketball yeah. fans. I don't know yeah, if you yeah, know, yeah. an yeah, early name of the band was Mookie Baylock, mm-hmm. and so I said, you know, we were promoting the band when they were not well known, and I was like, maybe they would be interested in like shooting hoops at the Palestra. Yeah. And uh, and so I threw a like shoot hoops with Pearl Jam event, uh, and they were like super excited That's about great. it because they wanted to like check out the Palestra. Yeah. And um, you know this was before they were a big deal, and there were not that many students there. But it was like a novelty. It was like wow, cool! Like some rock and roll band wants to shoot hoops with us. Like yeah, yeah we'll check that out. And like you know there were probably less than. I don't know, there were 30 kids there maybe, but I bet those 30 kids have a pretty awesome story to like now go and say that they shot hoops with Pearl Jam, you know? We're, uh, I mean, well, how, how would you rate Eddie Vedder's uh, hoop, hoop shooting I, Again, I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a sports guy, but they were all pretty good is my memory of it, you know? It's a funny thing because I can't imagine I can't imagine you know um, like an album two or later that, that them doing something like that. You have to sort of, I, they just have, couldn't. I mean, yeah, the, the, num- yeah, the numbers, the security, the time, their even time. But you just like sort of distancing yourself so many just from being like that. sports fans. You know, I mean, like especially again, like in that time, not not a very cool thing to be in, in a band like that. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how. I mean, I feel like those guys have always kind of. Yeah, they, they don't really uh, care. They don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. they would would wear their uh, their their fandom with a, yeah. as a badge of honor, you know. So, so did you go? But you, your point is valid. Yeah. You know, I will tell you, you know, yeah. a little little segue into my, you know, obviously I've been very um, very focused on on Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, the Beatles history, you know, having coming off the fifth Beatle. Um, and and one of the great Beatles mysteries really is which uh, which football team they supported, huh. because you know Liverpool prior yeah. to the Beatles, uh, really if it was known uh, outside of Liverpool for anything, it was for their town, football clubs. Right? Or, yeah, yeah li- Liverpool's a, a port town, and uh, and it had and still yeah. has two very important football clubs, which is Liverpool FC and Everton, mm-hmm. two very very yeah. uh, well respected football teams, football clubs as they say in the UK, and. Um, and after the Beatles, obviously Liverpool became known as a music sure. town. But prior to that, you know, Liverpool was a was a football town, and it is it is next to impossible that teenage boys growing up in Liverpool in the fifties and sixties didn't have allegiance sure. to one of those teams. Yeah. It's really near impossible. Yeah, you know. And for a while, the Beatles were like, "Oh, we're not really sports fans." And I believe, and this is just a guess, to me that has Brian Epstein written all over it. To me, that's Brian Epstein oh, telling the guys yeah. in the UK football is too much of a passion thing. You got to not publicly in, say which team you'd support. Oh, because if you're divisive, like, I'm a Liverpool. A issue. Yeah, because yeah, okay. if I'm a Liverpool yeah, fan, yeah. there are going to be people who are not yeah. going to listen okay. to you because you're a Liverpool fan, you know? L- less, so, so, less so than it's uncool to like sports. More no, no, about, like, less so that it's uncool. Don't, don't pick a yeah, side. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. More about don't pick a side than, than it being uncool. This is you know? uh, this is utterly fascinating to me that that uh, that there, there's anything left untapped at this point because right around right, 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 right around the time your book came out the um, the documentary about uh, Frida came out mm-hmm. which is like yeah, <laughs> you know totally. she was like and and the big thing like the big the big press behind that documentary is that she was sort of like the last untapped resource you know like the, the, yeah like literally everybody else in in this giant Beatles sphere has has been interviewed ad nauseum I and know she's finally getting her chance to shine so the fact that there's like any information at all is it's isn't crazy. that crazy? I mean, there's like you know, if, there are literally there are Beatles fests throughout the world. You know, there are these play. You know, they, like I know they do one in in Jersey where you know if you were in 
you know, Ringo's seven totally. all-star bands. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I've been, I've been, you know, I've been to many of them yeah. in, pr- in promotion of this book, and 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 I shouldn't just say in promotion that I am a, a bit of a geek sure. fan myself. Yeah. You know, those Beatles fests are really, really fun if you're yeah. if you're a Beatles geek like I am. It's just you know? it, it's crazy. I mean, you know, and 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 even the fact that you know, like I think most people who have any uh, familiarity with the Beatles know that the Brian Epstein story is is an interesting one. That he was an yeah. interesting character. That. Um, you know his his sexuality was in question for a long time. His relationship with John and all these other things. But um, do do you feel like the story wasn't told? It, I told mean, it? it definitely was not. And, I'm, and, again, I'm, and I'm not trying to pitch it, my own wares here. And that's crazy. But, but it's me, a, right? it's an untold story yeah. how, for sure. How, how, how did and, that go untold for for that long? Well, you know, I mean, we could you know we could talk for an hour about that. But I I think there are a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, in large part, you know, the heart of his personal story mm. is that he he overcame a number or or struggled, I should say, some some of which he overcame, some yeah. of which he may not have, depending on how you view your history but he struggled with a number of personal obstacles uh you know the in in large part the top three were were that he was gay at a time where it was literally a felony it was Mm -hmm. against the law to be gay in the united kingdom um he was jewish at a time of where anti-semitism was far more rampant than it is today jews were widely mistrusted uh, at best disliked at Mm -hmm. worst in the uk and um, and interestingly enough, uh, Jews also didn't work extensively in the music industry in the UK. Yep. You know, it was run by people like uh, Sir Joseph Lockwood. You know, uh, Christian Knights of the British Empire. <laughs> you know, times have obviously changed yep. now, but that was the case then. And thirdly, Brian was from Liverpool, and as we were talking earlier, sure. Liverpool was a port town. Yep. It had two very successful football clubs, but it wasn't known as a cultural it was blue collar. Uh, you know, yeah. The, yeah, there was nothing cultural yeah. going on in Liverpool that anyone anywhere else knew about. Yes, there was a thriving and, and really cool underground music scene, but it's not like anyone in London mm-hmm. knew about that or cared about that. So Brian was was in a lot of ways, you know, this kind of ultimate outsider. But but in particular, his his homosexuality because it was illegal and it yeah. was such a defining part of who he was. Um, his friends didn't talk about it, you know, and in the pr- and the press didn't talk about it. You know, there was a there in, in those days, um, the UK press, it really has done a 180. But back then, the UK press was very respectful and very much uh, um, they, they, they stuck to to they weren't scoop oriented. Sure. Put it There's that no way. Page six, you know, then. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it yeah. really is. You know, nowadays, the yeah. UK press really has done a 180. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, in the UK, the press is is, is way worse yeah. than we are here. Yeah. Like they don't fact check if only because they don't want to know that they're wrong because because they want to sell mm-hmm. sell paper the tabloids want to sell paper the uk tabloids are the worst yeah. you know but but back back in those days there was this unspoken um or maybe it was spoken who knows uh this agreement that like we'll let you backstage we'll let you tour with the band you know but you don't write about certain things mm. don't write about what you know if you see brian you know if you get whiffs of his homosexuality you don't write about that mm. if the band are cheating on their girlfriends or or doing drugs you don't write about that and and you know these guys were teenage boys who were on top of the world of course they were were sleeping around on their girlfriends you but, know but, but about, they didn't write about that they kept the beatles yeah. clean image and the press was respectful about that they played this kind of gentleman's understanding that if we give you access you're not going to write about certain things yeah. you know but as so and this is all a long-winded way of getting back to this like why has it taken so long to tell the brian yeah. epstein story is because the press didn't write about it his friends grew accustomed to, to keeping it close to the chest you know, even after he died and, and homosexuality became illegal, it's not as though all of a sudden it became socially acceptable. So for a long time, his, his the people who knew him best had been trained to not talk about mm-hmm. him, you know? 
And also the Beatles, part of part of Brian's management style was to shield them from the business. You know, in my book, in the Fifth Beatle, there's a line that um, where he tells the band, you know, you play your instruments, and I'll focus on the business. You know, I'll play the business like it's my instrument. Yeah. Only you'll never have to hear it. You know, and that was his style, and it worked. You know, it allowed them to focus on their art. But the flip side to that is they didn't, you know, understand or appreciate what he was doing for them. You know, it took decades after Brian mm-hmm. was gone before the band started to 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 really give him his due. Mm-hmm. And I think that's less because they were, you know, uh, snotty kids who didn't appreciate him and more because they didn't understand. And it was only until years after that they were managing their own business that they yeah. kind of realized how hard it could be, you know, and dare I say, you know, experience some failures that sure. like, you know, not every solo record by a by a, a solo Beatle has been a huge hit, you know, unlike those Beatles records sure. when they could do no wrong. And I'm sure Apple you know? had its, its sheriff <laughs> issues. Ma- right many that have been too, documented, yeah. you know. Yeah. But so so I think that's why. You know, it, it's only been in the past 15, 20 years that Paul McCartney is saying things like, if anyone was the fifth Beatle, it was Brian, yeah. you know, and that he's really starting to get his due. And I think it's also only in the past, you know, 10 years that things like – being gay, uh, you know, is not an immediate shutdown for for a, for a large part of the country. You know, now when I say, hey, I'm telling a, a graphic novel about a, a gay Jewish man who, yeah. you know, people haven't shut down. They're like, okay, you haven't said anything interesting yet. Yeah. A gay Jewish man who did what? You know, tell me more. <laughs> you know, whereas yeah. like 10 years ago, you know, it's about a gay Jew who, you know, a ton of people right away would say, well, it's not for me. Yeah. I don't want to read a story about a gay man or a Jewish man, you know. So, but, so, uh, but times have changed. So I think in, in some ways – the reason that it's been untold is because it's not the the climate hasn't been right to tell it until yeah. now. Yeah, you know? well, well, you know, I, the, the 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 notion of the fifth beetle has been floating around forever. I mean, obviously, it's been applied to several people. Sure, the title, yeah, yeah. You know, Billy Preston gets it at yeah. some point. It's a lot, a lot of different people. Have totally. Got it. Um, but 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 the idea that he 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 played a central role at, at, at least that 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 notion has been floating around for some some time. That Brian played yeah. a central role. That he was a really yeah, sure. That he was sort sure. of the Colonel Tom Parker of of the Beatles, or he was one of the most important. I mean, he's one of the you know one of the few, maybe the only. I'm not sure, but uh, one of the very you know the few managers to actually be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For example, you're absolutely right. But but that was last year. Okay, you know yeah. that was 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the guy died in 1967. The Beatles just celebrated their 50th yeah. anniversary of arriving ring, on American soil. <laughs> it's true as a so as a solo yeah. as a solo. That's true. But you know, I mean, so so it's uh you yeah. know it took a while. You're absolutely right, but but you know it was 50 years after mm. the Beatles landed in America before Brian's contributions have been yeah. recognized in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm not complaining about that. I'm happy as somebody who who considers himself at the vanguard of championing Brian's legacy. You know, I don't, I don't, I I'm happy about. It. I don't look back at the past and say it should have happened 30 years ago. I more look forward to the future and say like, well, look what we're doing now, and where he's he's getting his due. Um, was did you, did you start off with just a vague notion that you sort of wanted to do something about the Beatles, or did it did it start with Brian? Oh no, there? for me it was always about yeah. Brian. You know, the the genesis of this book went back to when I was when I was in business school mm. and I was dreaming about working in the arts and entertainment industries, wanting to to work for music. I was was just applying for my job at Sony Music, yeah. etc. And uh, I was at the Wharton School. And back then, in the 90s, the Wharton School didn't have a ton of resources for somebody who wanted to get involved in the arts. That's changed. The school now is is great for that. Um, But back then, it was really 
about investment banking and mm. finance and accounting. It was before the uh, other fun thing. It was before the internet yeah. uh, boom and before there were young people who were, you know, becoming incredibly successful entrepreneurs doing tech stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was in that kind of era, and and I had to seek out inspiration outside of my classes. And I thought I tend to be a little, little nerdy, a little geeky, um, and. Uh, I thought if I'm going to work in these industries, I should study the lives of the great entertainment visionaries, mm-hmm. believing that the Beatles and Brian kind of wrote the rule book on the pop music industry mm-hmm. and then rewrote the rule book. I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein. And that's how I began studying Brian's life, you know, was was out of this desire to have an inspiration for for business. And so I've been studying Brian's life for well over 20 years, you know. So about a decade ago when I decided now I want to tell this story, you know, as a graphic novel and I, I also had plans from the beginning to develop it as a film, mm. um, you know, it was always about Brian. Like at that point, Brian had already become what I call my historical mentor, you know, somebody that I never got a chance to meet, but somebody whose life I've studied meticulously to learn from. So for me, it's always, I mean, I, yes, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but for me, it's always been about Brian, the fifth Beatle. It wasn't as though I said, let's tell a great untold Beatles story and which, which one should I tell? Yeah. You know, it's more that like I've chased the life of this guy because it's been so inspiring to me. And, uh, you know, about a decade ago when I realized I had had a reputation and some credits and could actually pull off uh, doing something like this, I set about to do it. Did the did did it come about as a, as a film before you actually started uh, work on it as a graphic novel? Uh, you know, from the very beginning, I actually envisioned it as both. Yeah. At the time that I started working on it, I had already had some uh, some very high profile Broadway uh, successes under my belt, and I really would have loved to have done this as a Broadway show mm-hmm. because I, that was a world I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I thought about how I wanted to tell the story, it just didn't feel right for Broadway. Mm-hmm. To me, it felt like a graphic novel in a film. So from the very beginning, I envisioned it as both. And, um, you know, part of this was was when I decided how I wanted to structure the story, I thought I wanted I, an early decision was that I was going to focus on the last seven years of his life, which mm-hmm. was the years he spends with the Beatles. So, you know, through exposition and backstory and sure. hallucination and, and dream sequences and whatnot, we learn about his past yeah. and his childhood and whatnot. But it really takes place over those last seven years. So it starts off in 1961, Liverpool, which is very dark gray drab if you look at the first few pages of the book you'll see we did Mm. this you know it's very it's not quite black and white but i thought it fitted my head as being black and white yeah and andrew robinson in the you know colored those pages with blue gray black white very muted colors and and we did that you know that was a that was something um we talked about extensively and then it ends in 1967 london which is the summer of love, it's the pretty colorful of the psychedelic yeah, year. Time. So yeah. I mean, let's go. There, there's an yeah. event in the U- in London that year called a Technicolor Dream. <laughs> so I saw the Brian Epstein story as mirroring the mm. arc of the movement from black and white to color. And in my mind, the two mediums that most powerfully use color in their narrative yeah. are film and graphic novels. So from the very beginning, I said, "Let me do both," and I and I set out on a dual track to do both. And at some point, the graphic novel just kind of took on a life of its own, and it was clear that like this that was going to happen first. So I did, you know, at first I was really focusing my time fifty fifty between yeah. graphic novel and film. But at some point, uh, you know, that shifted, and I was spending most of my fifth Beatle efforts on on the graphic novel. And uh, and less on the film, but but it is a it is a, uh, a it, it, most people hear that we're doing a film and they assume oh the book's been such a huge success yeah. so now they're making a film and and that's just not the truth like or, or we've, even we've been working on both from the very yeah beginning. And, and, and yeah I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because to take that to even more of an extreme this is certainly something that, that I've seen happening a lot over the past you know five ten years. Um, 
as far as as far as like watching uh, the way that movie studios interact with the comics community, you know, if you go to like the San Diego Comic Con, it's a really good example of you know executives sort of walking around and sure, and, and, yeah. and picking out comics. And I've I've actually heard you know several instances of people realizing that. Um, you know, it's so much harder to transform, um, you know, a, a, a screenplay into a movie that uh, it's they're kind of using a, con- a comic as a proof of concept. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, I do hear about people saying they're making a graphic novel yeah. or a comic in order to make a film. Yeah. And uh, and I have yet to to see one of those that are any good. <laughs> I think if the reason I mean, I'm a huge comic fan. I grew up reading comics. Um, and I think if, uh, you know, there, there, there are different mediums, yeah. you know, yes, there are obvious similarities yeah. between the two and it's not a surprise that one, one leads to the next on, in both directions that mm-hmm. films are adapted into comics and comics are adapted into films, but, but they're different mediums and yeah. they have different strengths. And I think if you're making a graphic novel because you really want to make a film, um, and you think that'll be a stepping stone, that graphic novel is likely going to suck. You know, you need to approach them yeah. as two different projects, you know, and, and I, I'll be very clear about that. Like I never made this graphic novel in order to make a film. To me, they're two totally separate things. I love comics. I love film. And uh, and I want to do both. Um, but this book wasn't some sort of stepping stone. You know, this book is a comic and I love comics. And I'm proud of that, you know. Yeah, sure, but surely the amount of time that you spent working on this has, has caused you to, um, in some ways, kind of, re, uh, I guess, rethink your approach to 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 to, to the, the film? movie and yeah, and, you no, know, to recontextualize no, things. No question yeah. about it. I mean, there, there, you know, because the book at some point became the focal point yeah. of my efforts. You know, the film is greatly uh, influenced. So the screenplay that I've written is greatly influenced by the book. But if you were to read the screenplay after having read the book, you would see that there are a number of sequences in the film that don't exist in the book. Mm. There's a number of sequences in the book that aren't in the film you know right off the bat you may know that one of the very exciting things about the film is that we've secured access to Beatles music and so there's going to be a lot of music sequences you know we're going to yeah. use those rights that we've gotten you know obviously sure. and uh, and in the book you know a, a book can't literally sing yeah. you know maybe in this digital age that that's coming yeah. um, but right now you know the a book can't literally sing I believe that Andrew uh, and Kyle the artist did, a, did an amazing job I think the scene in the cavern you can almost hear the book sing and in the uh, and in the Philippine sequence that Kyle Baker wrote, you can almost hear you know a song like you know I told him I said imagine scoring it to help, mm. and you I feel like you can yeah. almost hear that song in the background, but um, but 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 it doesn't break out into song. <laughs> so yeah. so yeah. those those concert sequences in the book are 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 limited. You know we did few of them because you know but but in the film there are going to be many more. So there's you know we're respecting the the two mediums, but uh, I always say that. Um, you know, the, the film, the way I describe it is it, it is an expansion on the graphic novel. You know, if I'm in an elevator and I've only got 10 seconds, I'll say like, yeah, we're adapting the book into a film because it's easy to understand mm. that. But when I get a chance to sit down with somebody like you uh, and really have a conversation, what I say is it's not an adaptation. Yeah. It's an expansion. We're taking what we've done there and we're expanding on the universe. And there's certain things in the book that aren't going to be in the film and vice versa. And so if you love this topic, experience both and you'll uh, you'll have a broader picture of who Brian Epstein was. But, but you, know? you know, structurally in terms of, um, you know, the years of his life that you're working on, uh, the, the, the notion of flashback. I mean, the, the, these are largely things that are going to translate totally well over there. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, yeah. the, stru- the structure, yeah. you know, obviously a screenplay is going to change when we get sure. by the between now and when we get to shooting yeah. um, and, and could change in the editing room. Because, but you know, for this now, was, this the structure is 
necessarily the work of three people versus a movie, which is exactly, God, exactly right. And, and the the directors yeah. that that um, that are interested in the Fifth Beatle are all people who are, um, if I may say, visionary. You know, and they're going to want to put their own stamp mm-hmm. on it. So, um, and I want that. I welcome that. Yeah. Like, I'm not looking for a director who's just going to take my book and, and shoot it. I don't, I don't want that. That's uninteresting to yeah. me. I want somebody who's uh, who's going to do something really unique and cool with it. Uh, the, the first thing that I mean, the first time I met you, the first time our, our mutual friend Jeff in, introduced us, yeah. uh, before I heard anything else about you, um, even like right before I heard uh, the fact that this book was coming out eventually, I knew that you were working on a movie deal and that you had secured the rights to the song. So yeah. that is, that's, there's no, there's no precedent for that. I mean, you just don't None. hear, yeah, it's very if exciting. you hear Beatles songs in movies, you know, I know like real Tenenbaums, there's an instrumental version and there's that Julie Taymor version, which was all, you know, yeah, reimaginings but, and, but you know, the, the, this is the first and only time the band has ever approved yeah. that their music be in a film about them. You know, if you look at pre- previous Beatles movies like mm. Backbeat or Nowhere Boy, like yeah. none of those movies have Beatles music, yeah, um, because the band needs to approve that. You know, so um, so what did you? What happened? How did you? How did you? You know, I, I I don't know. It took me two and a half years <laughs> yeah. to get them to say yes, uh, and uh, it finally just just came down one day that we got a, a note from Apple Corps from yeah. from their company saying that they approved the script and that we could do a deal with Sony ATV. Who control the music licensing? You know, no, no explanation was given as to why all so of a you sudden. You don't know if it was a subject um, matter that, that pushed them over the I, edge. I mean, I I don't know for sure. Yeah. Like they never told me, yeah. hey, this is why. But I, but if I had to guess, yeah, I think it was that it was in large part because of Brian. I think that they that they um it, the subject matter of Brian they they are now as we mm. were discussing earlier realizing that Brian has not gotten his due yeah and I think they're eager to give him his due and I think they realize that their music would um would uh would greatly enhance the story and and to some degrees maybe you couldn't even tell the story properly without the music and so I think they want the story told properly and I think that I think if I had to say one reason why it's because of Brian um. But I'd like to think that uh, that maybe my script had something to do with it, and they also liked the script and, and realized really that my heart is in the right yeah. place. You know, this is not as we as you know you asked this question earlier. I'm not some producer or writer that said, "Hmm, let's tell a great Beatles story." And what hasn't been told yet that you know that would be interesting and like, I know that would make a great. I'm somebody who loves Brian Epstein. Mm-hmm. You know, who's been incredibly inspired by that story, and I think they saw that like that's the place that I'm coming from. So, and, so the script, know, so the script has been around that that. That long. There's, oh yeah. yeah, I mean, in order in order to get the music yeah. rights, okay. I had to get yeah. they had to approve my film script. I mean, that's that was step one. Um, so you know, if you do your if you just do your 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 uh, if you pull out your calendar and do your research, you'll see that like that the film didn't flow from the graphic novel entirely because I secured music rights yeah. before the book even had come out. And in order to do that, I had to send them my script. So you know, it's um, it, it was something we were working on simultaneously. Do you have any idea if Paul or Ringo have any idea that the the, the project is happening? Did it just go through this sort of bureaucratic? Oh no, no, I I've been in touch with all of them oh, with wow. Paul Ringo and and the estates yeah. of Yoko of uh, you know through Yoko yeah. Ono through the estate of John and, and Olivia through the estate of George. Of George. Yeah. And I'm very good about making sure all all the the two former mm-hmm. Beatles and the estates know exactly what we're doing. Every time there's a milestone. I'll, like the book came out, I'll send them the book. Mm. You know, I'll, I'm I'm pretty good about yeah. making sure that um, that they're that they're aware of everything that we're yeah. doing. McCartney, in particular, has uh, has got 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 back to us. I mean, he wrote <laughs> us he wrote us a note um, saying that he enjoyed the book and complimenting well, Andrew on his artwork. Signing autographs anymore? And, so. uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, getting that through. <laughs> you know, in, in order, in as I said, in order to secure the the rights. 
Um, I had to get all of their approval, yeah. so I know that they've all seen it and approved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I, I won't lie. I haven't heard from Ringo yeah. saying, hey, awesome job. Yeah. Um, but Paul wrote us and That's said, great. and said wonderful, and, and said, gave us a thumbs up and said that we did a great job. And that was a pretty cool day in my life to, to have gotten a note from Paul McCartney. Um, but uh, but I as, the others are aware, but I've not had a conversation or, or directly heard from from any of the others other than than that that their reps have told me that they have uh, approved the project. So because that, that's another w- sort of weird level level of, of, of pressure there, the fact that not only is it based on a true story, but that some of these people are still around. Sure, yeah, and that you yeah. know that in in some respects that they have control because you know I'm, I'm uh, you know backbeat. I guess backbeat can kind of exist as a movie without Beatles. Songs because it's such it's an early movie they can do that they can kind of get away with music, it but, it's but still a little weird but it they is can kind of get away but in with the it. case in the case of a, a movie like this you know I'm just, I'm just thinking of like uh, you know when, when when you can't mention a product name in a scene and you make up a generic product that's all you can think about for the rest of the scene is it's weird right you yeah, know, it's, yeah. Uh, so so trying to I, I mean you. I can't imagine you would you would even have gone ahead with the movie if you couldn't secure the rights to the songs. With the movie, yeah, uh, you know it's a good question. I, I did write a you know the script, yeah, intending to make the movie regardless of whether I could get the songs. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest; like mm-hmm. I felt like the Brian Epstein story needs to be told, yeah. but it was something I stressed out about a lot because I was like, I don't know that this story can really be yeah. told in film without the songs. You know, sure, I had a pitch that said, well, it's really about Brian. It's not about the Beatles. But in the back of my head, I was always like, yeah, but how are you going to tell the Brian Epstein story on film without the songs? You can do it in, in a book yeah. uh, because, as I said, books don't sing. So you're yeah. not missing something that you wouldn't expect to be here in any way. But in the film, it would be a little weird. I mean, you know, yes, it's really the story in my mind of an underdog who, against all odds, went the distance in his chosen field. And that was the music industry. And, and that's the story. It's an inspiring human story. Um, but it's not but, a story but, you would but hear everybody knows the that's it. Yeah. I mean, everybody, you know, I'm yeah. not going to kid myself. People, the first group of people who are going to go see this movie are going to go because they heard it's about the guy who managed the Beatles. And they're that they're, they're going to be curious about that and they're going to expect Beatles songs. So, yeah, I think it would be would be close to impossible to tell this story properly without Beatles songs. Is that is that why? I mean, is that a large part of the reason why it wouldn't worked as a musical? Because in that case, it would have just been about the songs a stage musical you mean uh that's probably part of it but like honestly i just didn't uh Mm. the way that i structured the story the way that the fantasy sequences work Mm -hmm. you know just the way that i wanted to tell it felt to me like a graphic novel in a film like i felt like some of those sequences the way again the way that i was envisioning them especially the fantasy ones it felt like i would have been trying to fit the uh the square peg in the round hole if i was trying to do it on stage it just didn't feel right which is not to say there may be a stage version one day you know um but uh but right now i i just don't i don't see it in that medium uh immediately yeah well uh, you know on the note of, of shoving square pegs into into round holes and 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 just uh uh with stage musicals in, in general i mean you know certainly uh, obviously over the past you know 15 years there's been a huge trend to just adapt everything into into a stage musical, yeah. um, you know, and and certainly you've had a hand in some of those, you sure. know, yeah. in terms yeah. of uh, you American know, Idiot, yeah, was, the, the Green yeah. Day, the yeah. uh, Green Day musical, and um, I, your Wikipedia page as you're working on it, Alanis Morissette. I one. am indeed. Yep. Um, what what's the what's the process there, and 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 how do you ensure that? Like, I mean, Amer- American Idiot. Uh, makes sense from the standpoint that you're you're kind of you're you're already dealing with a rock opera, right? You're already dealing with a a cycle of songs that yep. that have a story, but um. You know, I, I, I guess, A, at what point do you actually 
come on board for the process and and you know and where in there do they do, do you decide that this is a worthy thing to take on versus just um somebody trying to cash in on the trend of of you know well, rock yeah. musicals i mean look for, for me you know i i come on board uh, you know at the very beginning and and uh, and i come on board because i love the idea you yeah. know like with alanis uh you know we're adapting jagged little pill for the stage and and you know i approached alanis and hmm. said here's the idea and and what do you think and and then we talked about it you know so so for me it's like you know i come on board when when it's at idea stage and if i don't like the idea then i'm just not going to get yeah. involved anyway you know um so uh so for me, it's it is it does start at the very beginning, and again, this is just for me. Um, working with the artists very closely is, is key. Um, you know, I wouldn't have gotten involved in American Idiot if Green Day weren't involved in every step of the way. Mm. You know, Billy Joe Armstrong co-wrote the book with our director Michael Mayer. You know, to me, that was a critical thing. Um, and a lot of producers would disagree with me. A lot of producers believe that when you're adapting material, you want to keep the uh, the creators of the source material as as far away yeah. as possible because they don't know, they don't understand they'll stage, or they'll get you and, know yeah. they'll 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 yeah. think that they know about stage and and micromanage as you yeah. said, and you know, and and put opinions where they're not needed. For me, it's the exact Exact opposite. Mm-hmm. I think that, like you know, to stay true to the source material, you need the the original creator involved. Um, and I guess I should also say, like to me, that's what's that's fun about what I yeah. do. It's like, man, I got to work with Green Day, sure, and I'm getting to work with Alanis sure. Morissette. Like, how cool is that? How lucky am I? Yeah. You know, pinch me, someone. You know, it's like to me, that's that's the part I love about what I do. You know. Um, and I also try to take myself out of it. And as a fan, if I had heard that like some Broadway producers had optioned American Idiot and were putting it on the stage without Green Day's involvement, yeah. first of all, I don't think the band would ever have done it. But let's just assume that in some what-if world that was happening. As a Green Day fan, I'd be like, oh, my God, that's going to be awful. That's going to be terrible. But, you know, when I heard, like, if I was a fan hearing, like, oh, but Green Day are intimately involved, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that sounds intriguing. You know, so I always try to take myself out of those yeah. situations as producer and just put on my fan hat. And I'd be like, as a fan, what do I want? What would I want to hear? Well, that's an you interesting know? point, though. You know, because uh, uh, you know, speaking of, I guess, uh, uh, '90s music and and um, you know, the, the sort of the last few uh, embers of the of the record industry. I had uh, uh, John Nelson from Harvey Danger on the show, and and you know, he had he, he was discussing his sort of his his one big regret. Um, and it was that, uh, and it's it's it, it seems in 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 hindsight it seems like kind of a, a ridiculous one, but it was that they were given the opportunity to go on Letterman and to play with the full band that that Paul Shaver and everybody else would back them up and they would do this, um, you know, like lar- big broader uh-huh. version of I think I'm pretty sure it's Flagpole City at the time, uh, and, and he didn't do it at the time because he felt like it was just sort of going against some. Whatever ethic that it just it just wasn't right that it wasn't true to the music or or yeah. whatever his point was, but um, you as somebody again who like you know is grew up listening to to to, to Minor Threat you know you, you've you've come a long way that you're now sure, making yeah. a yeah. stage musical with with Green Day right yeah yeah I mean for you know it's funny though. Um, because I did grow up with Minor Threat, yeah. but I also grew up here in New York City going to Broadway shows. You know, my parents mm-hmm. were lovers of the arts, and uh, ever since I was a little kid, they were taking me to Broadway, to opera, to ballet. So I grew up with all of that stuff. And then as soon as I was allowed out of the house on my own, I was yeah. going down to CBGBs to see Bad Brains, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I grew up loving both, mm. you know? So to me, putting a Green Day album on a Broadway stage was not a weird thing. Yeah. 
You know, in yeah. like, although I, you know, I went to collegiate, it's an upper boy, uh, all boys school on the Upper West Side. And I remember having conversations with my teenage guy friends where I was trying to explain wh- why I thought, you know, some of the experimental stuff that was going on at um, the New York City Ballet yeah. was not that different from some of the stuff that yeah. Sonic Youth was doing downtown, you know, and uh, and how those two worlds really ought to be more mm-hmm. more together. And people looked at me like I had a third head, you know. Like not two heads, three. You know, like it was, they thought I was crazy. Um, that, but but to me, that's not crazy. You know, well, that, that's you know that's that's an interesting example because you know I, I guess experimental ballet. There's something subversive going on. Did you feel like you guys were doing something a little subversive too? with the, American Idiot? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like now now in the wake of you know uh, in the wake. I mean, uh, you know, I like to think I'm I'm part of a movement. Yeah. You know that Hedwig's on Broadway now, sure. and um, you know uh, things like You're in Town. And Book of Mormon certainly, mm-hmm. um, you Abney know, but Q but but right, Abney yeah. Q is a great example. But I like to yeah. think that like this has been a, a path, you know. Um, but at the time when American Idiot, w- when we were putting it on Broadway, people thought it was crazy. You know, mm-hmm. people are like, you know, punk rock. I've had a history of this, man. You know, uh, my my first major outing as uh, you know being intimately involved and in not just one of the producers, but being on the sort of team that's really yeah. really making a show happen at the at the at the, the key level was a Raisin in the Sun, mm-hmm. and I, we cast Sean Combs, P Diddy, as the male lead, and everybody said you're crazy. African Americans don't come to Broadway. Kids don't come to Broadway. You're going to lose your shirt. And I was like, that's absurd. You know, if you give meanwhile, them... this is a, pl- a pretty well established play at this yeah, point. And I was like, look, you give them something they yeah. want to see. Yeah. And you make sure they know about it because they may not be reading yeah. traditional Broadway yeah. press. They're going to come. And we proved that with A Raisin in the Sun. And then a few years later, I was hearing the same thing. You know, punk rock fans don't come to Broadway or mm-hmm. pop punk or whatever you want to call Green Day's sure. music. They are not going to Broadway and kids don't go to Broadway. You're going to lose your shirt. I'm like, that's absurd. Again, you give these you give the fans something that they want to see, yeah. put it at a ticket price that they could, that they that they can afford. And make sure they know about it. You know, make sure you're marketing it in in, in places, media that they're 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 consuming. They're going to come, and once again they came. But at the beginning, I heard the same arguments I heard with a raisin in the sun, which is that like this is an audience that doesn't typically go to Broadway, mm-hmm. and how are they, how is this going to work? And to me, it's like, I, man, I grew up loving loving punk rock, mm-hmm. and I grew up loving Broadway. So you know, I, I know it because I'm I'm that I'm that kid. I'm that kid that can do both. You so- know, so. How, how how did you how did you make the the transition? At what point did did you move you know from 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 record label to actually working yeah. with Broadway shows? Yeah, so I I grew up, as I said I grew up here in New York with this sort of bizarre duality, or, yeah. or it didn't seem bizarre to me, but like I, I loved everything from from opera and ballet yeah. to to punk rock and experimental guitar you know guitar rock like, and and uh, so I knew that those were my passions, and I knew up knew I wanted to grow up working in all of this stuff. You know, when I started my own company, Tawari Entertainment Group, I gave it that name. Um, because it's it's very vague, you know. I can take on any projects within the arts and entertainment industries that that, are, that interest me. Um, so I knew from from my days in college that eventually my end goal was to work across the the arts and entertainment industries. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather, who was a serial entrepreneur, was a big influence in my life, and he always told me, "You need to do what you love, and you need to work for yourself." So that was my end goal. I knew I loved the arts, so I wanted to work in all the art forms, and eventually I mm-hmm. wanted to start my own company. So my background when I was working for others was always the record labels, um, but when I left the record labels and I started my own company, I was working for Mercury Records, Division of Polygram, 
Uh, Seagram's bought Polygram and merged it with Universal. Budgets were frozen. Everyone was miserable. And this was the moment where I said, you know, my end goal has always been to start my own company. So rather than going to look for another job like all my other coworkers, I'm going to just start my own company. You know, so I did. And I knew right off the bat that I wanted to, to not just work in music, that I wanted to work in theater and eventually film and television. And so I set about uh, trying to break into Broadway because Broadway was in my backyard um, being here in New York City. I thought that, like, let me do that rather than film because if I was in L.A., I probably would have focused on film. But I was here in New York, so let me focus on Broadway. And um, I met some of the lead producers of the producers, uh, and they took me under their wing in a mentoring kind of capacity. I did raise some money for the show, so I did earn my place at the table. But really, they treated me like mentors would, like mentors would, and, and and I learned how to produce from that show. And that show did extremely well. Um, then I got involved in doing some of the international financing for Hairspray, which also did very, very well. And then all of a sudden, I was kind of off to yeah. the races on Broadway. I had two you know, successful shows that I was associated with, albeit on a small level, but I was associated with these successful shows. And, um, and then so I started working very deeply on Broadway. And then a point basically came where I just was looking at the, all the stuff that I was doing and the amount of resources I was spending on music, on traditional music stuff like managing bands, marketing consultation, record label services, that those sorts of things. And the returns that I was seeing, just they were so small. And the amount of time and energy and, and financial resources I was spending on theater and the returns I was seeing there, it was just there was no comparison. I realized like from a purely business standpoint, I got to focus on theater yeah. projects. And I'm very proud to say, as I shut down my traditional music industry pursuits, I, I, I did them gracefully. Like I was managing a ton of bands, and I made sure every single band I was managing had another manager if they wanted one. Some of them decided, we don't want another manager. We want to just manage mm-hmm. ourselves. But every band that wanted a manager, I made sure I placed them with a manager before I shut down my management arm. Um, but I eventually just shut down all my traditional music industry stuff. And looking back on it, what really what I've done, although I, I won't claim to be so smart as to have planned it this way, yeah. <laughs> you know, what I've done is I've really put my passion for music into yeah. other disciplines. You know, and, and you and it sounds like you got out right right in time as as things were kind of imploding uh, yeah, imploding yeah. right around you. I totally. Mean, um, you know, especially in the when we were talking about all of this in in the context of of uh, Brian Epstein, that there was actually a point in the music industry where bands could just be bands seems sort of crazy all these years later right how about that right yeah, yeah. That, that there's no i mean there's no way there, there, there's no way you can be in a, in, a, in a in a rock and roll group in a successful or not successful rock and roll group and not play a role in every single part of the process yeah which, it's true which is you it's know uh, ups 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 and downsides to it obviously you know mike watt is a good example of somebody who's been able to do that who you know is at least yeah. good at like being out there you know i i think maybe we should qualify it by saying it's not that you can't do it but yeah. you, you can't you really can't do it and have massive mainstream success yeah. you know it's like it depends on what your goals are yeah you I can mean, do it if you want to just be you know and you know listened to by your friends and and their friends and a small group you know, but like, you know, yeah. it's, it's a tricky thing because this concept of the rock star implies like millions of fans and lots of money and a high life. And like, if you want that or anything approaching that, like, yeah, you need to be you need to be on the on television and you need to have, be have a fashion sense and you need to, you know, maybe be acting a little bit. But, but and I you would need argue, to, you know, yeah, I would argue that, that it that it, it drills down a lot further than that, that you can't you can't have really sort of any success at all without, you know, you, you, you need to upload your video to YouTube. Yeah, right. You need sure. to be on social yeah, media. No, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you at some no matter what level you're on, unless you sort of, you know, made it out just in time, you have to be involved in, in every part of the process yeah no i think that's right i think that's right 
Um, you know, again, though, if your goal is is that kind of exposure, yeah. you know or, what I mean? Or if just it, exposure. <laughs> it, or exposure at all, yeah. right, sure, yeah. sure. If, I mean, if you, you don't want to care, make it you outside just want, your bedroom. That's exactly yeah. right. And maybe yeah. some people don't. No. You know, maybe some people are like, man, I just sure. want to make music for myself and for my yeah. friends and, like, playing a couple of school gigs is cool. Like, I don't need anyone outside to hear me. If that's the case, then, yeah. yes, you don't need to be involved in all those other things. But if you want any kind of real exposure – yeah, yeah, you you got to be involved in that hey, stuff, you, and that's part yeah. of why I started Star Polish yeah. was was you know we provided a lot of free advice and guidance for bands because like you because bands you know I, I I took a page from my my punk rock days. It's like you need to do it yourself. No one else is going to do it for you, or no one else is going to do it well for you. You know, so so uh, so to, you're right. You need to be able to take that stuff into your own hands. So I mean, it sounds like you wanted to also do something creative the the, the entire time. I mean, it's 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 kind of you know, and it's it's tough. In a way, sort of like being in this world, being around all these really creative people, letting them go out and express themselves, and you know, and uh, and uh, you know, not not to say that there aren't creative parts of business, but you know, uh, you know, watching all these sort of amazing things happen and you having to work behind the scenes, but all the while you've been kind of plotting, making your own. Yeah, work sure. Yeah. 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 No. Look, I. I mean, I. I. I love the creative side of things. Yeah. I, as a producer, I've always uh, fancied myself a creative producer. You'd mm-hmm. probably have to talk to the people I've worked with to sure. see if they agree but like but I've always fancied myself a creative yeah. producer who wanted to get involved in script notes and and uh, and and crafting the creative and you know yes I'm good at fundraising but like that's not the part that I enjoy the part that I enjoy is being deep into the creative mm-hmm. and uh, you know I was at business school as I said but while I was at business school I was also getting a dual degree with the University of Pennsylvania School of uh, College of Arts and Sciences in English with mm-hmm. a creative writing concentration. <laughs> so I've always kind of, you know, as I said, fancied myself a creative type. I've been writing ever since I could write. I've been yeah. writing poetry and short fiction and stuff. But not not unlike the conversation we just had about, you know, exposure. I never wanted exposure. You know, yeah. like I, I would would, would uh, compile my poems and short fiction. Uh, back this was back in the days before of, of xeroxing you know into little things and I would xerox them off like making a zine mm-hmm. but I really only wanted my friends and family to have it so I gave it to my friends and family you know it wasn't until the fifth beetle mm-hmm. that I actually wanted to do something commercial uh, dare I say commercial or, or just wanted to expose it to people yeah. outside my inner circle that you know that I wanted to put my sort of creative um, side into into a project that that I wanted to have a more mass uh, mass consume I wanted a mass consumption for it. I wanted people around the world to know the Fifth Beatles story, whereas like the poetry that I was writing before, I, I didn't want anyone outside my yeah. circle of friends to know about. I wasn't ashamed of it. It just that that wasn't the purpose, you know. But the purpose of this yeah. is to sing the unsung story yeah. of Brian Epstein around the world, you know. So, uh, so yeah, it was the first time. But I, I've I've long, you know, considered myself a creative or an artist, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, it's the part of what I do that I love the most. Yeah. And I have a few other projects that I can't quite announce yet, but what I'm working on this year are creative. The Alanis Morissette uh, Jagged Little Pill is something that I'm not writing. We're, we're knee-deep in discussions with writers right now. But all the other projects that I have coming mm-hmm. down the pike are projects that I'm involved in the writing and because that's what I love doing. And and uh, and dare I say, with the success of The Fifth Beetle, it seems like other people like what I do too. And uh, you know, I'm, I've gotten a lot of positive affirmation yeah. that I can do this. And so I'm going to do more of it, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, this idea that this was something that like absolutely had had to be birthed. That this is something you were sitting on that you're incubating for a really long time, and it came out not because you necessarily um, wanted to write a script for world, but you know that you that you needed this to come out. Do you feel like the, these these other things that you're working on, in, in some cases, you're working on them? Um, I would I would imagine based on the fact that you you had some success here. Um, 
do those feel as as sort of as as necessary? Do you feel like you're you're shepherding them in 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 the same way that you did this story? You know, it, uh, it's it's I don't know that anything for a while is going to be quite yeah. the labor of love yeah. that this one was. Um, you know, I am I have a number of comics ideas and mm-hmm. um, and one that is fairly close. Uh, to, uh, to to being ready to I announce. I may have overheard a little um, You probably did overhear a little bit about that. Please don't report <laughs> on, on anything you may have overheard. Um, but, uh, you know, um, my comics ideas are, are, are very specifically all uh, serialized work, work, not a graphic yeah. novel. Um, and I love graphic novels, and I loved this, but it took me 20 yeah. years to research yeah. and 10 years to, 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 to see completion. Andrew Robinson uh, took about four years to just finish the art. And, like, you know, uh, I, I'm very pleased to say that I have fans now. Yeah. You know, I go to Comic-Cons, and there are people who, who want, want to meet me and whatnot, and I'd like those fans to have something else from me within the next sure. five years. Like sure. I don't want them to have to wait another five or 10 years before they can read anything else from me. Um, so my next projects are all serialized, yeah. uh, are, also all, are all yourself. serialized yeah. ideas. And, and yes, for myself, yeah. I want the next piece to come out uh, sooner. You know, we talked about serializing the fifth Beatle, you know, as it realized, as we realized it mm-hmm. was uh, taking so long to, um, to make, we thought, you know, can we break this up if only to get some of it yeah. out so that people can see it. And we just like, there weren't natural breaks at 20 pages, 30 pages, 40 pages, whatever it might be. So we said, no, this is a novel. This is a story that needs to be consumed in one one fell swoop, you know. Or, I mean, you might stop, but it's it's a one-volume piece of work. And my other idea is, you know, partially because for personal reasons, I just want to get something out. I don't want to have to be working on something yeah. for 10 years. But also I, I want – I want uh, it's so weird for me to say this, but I want my fans um, to be able to, uh, to to see something else from me and not, not to have to wait forever for it. Um, so my next projects are going to be very different from the fifth Beatle in every way, shape and form. Um, I, I, I am only working on my own ideas. So I will say that I, I'm not working on anything that I don't love, Mm -hmm. but I got to give the fifth Beatle its credit. You know, it'll, it'll be a long time before I be able to say anything is going to be quite the labor of love that that was. They're, they're, they're different in every way just because you feel like you, you need to do something different now you, you wanted to use a different part of your brain you want to maybe distance yourself from it a little bit or um, that uh, minus the distancing yeah. myself like i you know the fifth beetle is not going anywhere because i'm writing the screenplay mm-hmm. and i'm co-producing the film um so i'm still very much in fifth beetle world yeah. you know so it's certainly not about distancing myself from it but yeah i think it's it's wanting to to um to use different sides of my brain and uh and i have a lot of other ideas and i don't want to become oh he's the music bio guy you know, like, are you do, working on another bio, biographical graphic novel? Like, I'm not. It's not another biography. Yeah. So part of that is because I want to stretch other muscles. Mm-hmm. Part of that is I don't want to be pigeonholed. Part of that is is just it's a lot of work to research uh, a biographical life, and I want the next thing to be something where I can ha- be uh, have both the, the challenges and the excitement of, of having it be purely fictional, that I can create it and not have to worry about fact-checking. Um, so yeah, there are a number of personal reasons, a number of professional reasons, a number of career-oriented reasons, um, but it's not about distancing myself yeah. from this one because I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm intensely involved in all the next steps of the Fifth Beetle, you know. At, at any point after the success of this, though, because you know, it, it, I don't think becoming the music bio guy would necessarily be a 
bad. It wouldn't thing be a bad a thing. It'd be a great thing. But but I but I want to do other things. Did, did you, you did know? you did did you you didn't at any point consider that that it would be you know like why not do a Brian Jones book next? Or, uh, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> my, you could do Wilson my, my, Jones and Epstein and do no, the Brian. Look, you know, I think I think there. I think actually, there's a lot of. Um, I think the Colonel Parker story is a great yeah. manager story. I think the Peter Grant story. He was the manager of Led Zeppelin yeah, yeah, is yeah. a fantastic story. Bill I Graham, think there. Maybe Andrew Lou Goldham. Yeah. You know, is a, and he's and Andrew uh, managed the Rolling Stones, and he he's written a few books about his life. So that's kind that story's kind of been told, although not in graphic novel or film. Uh, I think there's a number of yeah. great music manager stories that should be told. You know, um, so and it would certainly not. I'd be I'd be proud if I was that guy. Yeah. But the truth is like. I'm a, I have other ideas and I and and I can't do everything and I'm not going to live forever and so uh, so I want to focus on just doing some other stuff I you know to me uh, I, I think I, I've proved that I can do this and I wanted the challenge of doing something else you know there you go those effectuary he's he's one of those people that I speak with and genuinely feel bad at how little I've managed to accomplish with my life. He's, he's, he's pretty much been everywhere and, and, and done everything has uh, really put out some, some fascinating works. I'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and, and discuss some of that very, very wide ranging interview. And I think we managed to capture, um, uh, at least a, you know, at least a portion of what uh, of what he's done over the years. Um, as we were setting up the interview, I think he went back and and looked at all the past episodes and looked at all the folks that uh, that we had spoken with, and he said, "Oh, you interviewed Watt? I know Watt." And then um, after the end of the interview, as I was you know packing my things up, he asked me who I had coming up, and I said, "Oh, um, I'm going to be interviewing Alex Winter in a few days." And he said, "Oh, I know Alex, of course." Of course you do. Vivek, Vivek, uh, Vivek pretty much pretty much knows everybody, and is I think came across during this conversation as a very wonderful, uh, warm human being. So has made very uh, a lot of uh, a lot of friends all over the place. One of whom is uh, our mutual pal Jeff Newell. So thanks so much to him for setting that up. Uh, thanks so much to Vivek for sitting down. His uh, his his most recent uh, work is is the Fifth Beatles. We discussed that length there. I think newly out in paperback, so you should check that out. Um, Jagged Little Pill musical coming up. Didn't manage to squeeze too many details out of that. I don't think he's really uh, talking about that at length yet. But uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks uh, thanks so much to, uh, to to Brian the producer. I should note that if there are any technical difficulties in this episode, completely my fault. I. I uh, I, I tried to edit this one together to save them a little bit of uh, a little bit of, of time because you know I thought it'd be fun to put out two episodes this week. We've got a we've got a big back backlog of episodes. Uh, but back this interview was conducted a while ago, um, as far as I know. The <laughs> jacket little pill uh, show may or may not have opened in that that intervening time because uh, 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 you know unfortunately uh, I've been waiting a little bit uh, a little while to put this up. So I figured. No time better than the present, uh, so we, we put up two this week. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you liked what you heard, you can shoot us a line. It's riylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's riylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all the information about the show. Uh, we've got a relatively new Facebook page. You should uh, follow us and, and like us and poke us and do all the other things that you do over at Facebook. Um, and iTunes. iTunes. Uh, rate us over on iTunes if you like the show. Follow us there as well. And check out uh, many other fine podcasts from the Boing Boing Podcast Network. We will be back next week um, at the, the regular time so stay tuned for that for another episode of RIYL. 